was, we were pioneers. We were told, here's a people group, you can't get to them through traditional missionary means. In fact, we're not sure you get to them at all, go figure it out. And so we, uh, we found ourselves living in Central Asia among a people who had never had any exposure whatsoever to the gospel. Uh, our people group of 13 million Persian-speaking Sunni Muslim uh, people in Central Asia, living in the Soviet Union and Afghanistan, 13 million of them, we found one believer uh, when we got there. And that person actually had been in the Soviet army and had been converted to Christ through the testimony of a Russian Baptist who also had been drafted into the army and had shared the gospel with him. But otherwise, there simply were no Christians among our people. And by the grace of God, we were able to learn the language, we were able to raise up a team, develop a strategy, and by the time we left that assignment, uh, we saw somewhere between eight and 9,000 uh, Muslims who would come to faith in Jesus. And one of the things I will say to you right off the bat is if you hear stories of people being resistant, if you hear, oh, they're hard to reach, I want you just to dismiss that thought altogether. Because while it is true, certainly, that there are places where we are seeing greater response to the gospel than in other places, the reality is Scripture tells us that everyone who is outside of Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins. And I have, in, in my lifetime, never experienced degrees of dead. You know, dead's, dead's dead. And while there may be differing degrees of difficulty in helping a sick person get well, with dead people, the only thing that's going to work is resurrection. And fortunately, we happen to have a God who specializes in that. And he does it through the proclamation of the gospel. And what we have seen over and over again is that the issue is not that people are resistant, but that we simply have never gotten to them. That the issue is not their resistance, but our disobedience. And that everywhere, without exception, that we have gone and stayed, planted our lives, learned the language, shared the gospel, we have seen people come to faith in Jesus. So we got to be part of that movement uh, early on in the early 90s, uh, going into the 2000s in, in the Islamic world. Um, you know, it said no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, because we were seeing fruit, I was steadily demoted from being a frontline missionary to being regional leader, and now I'm a vice president. So um, hopefully someday soon I'll be able to retire and do the only sensible thing a retiree should do, which is, of course, move back to the Muslim world to tell people about Jesus, which is what's really fun to do. What I want to talk to you, though, about tonight is, is a very fundamental question for us. What is the mission that God has given his church to do? When we talk about missions, what are we talking about? One of the things I have discovered in the three and a half some, some odd years that I've been back in the U.S. After, after literally decades living overseas is that there's actually a fair bit of confusion in our churches about what we mean by missions. And I find people blending all sorts of things together. Um, there are some who would think of missions basically as anything we do outside of our church walls. And so if, if, if we have a you know, sports clinic, we're going to call it missions. But whatever we do, if it's not in here, we're going to call it mission. Others who may have thought a bit more will say, well, we need to go a little more specific. Let's say that missions is anything we do that Christ commands or that Scripture tells us to do outside of our walls. And, and typically, that falls in four categories. One is the most traditional of those categories, which is evangelism and church planting. One of those is also very much traditional in the sense that it has always been part of evangelical missionary undertaking, and that is mercy ministry. That people who have the heart of Christ cannot go somewhere, see overwhelming need, and remain unmoved. And so wherever we have gone, we have done medical work, we have fed the hungry, we have, we have taught the uneducated, done things of that sort. Increasingly today, though, we also hear people talk about justice issues, the desire to pursue justice within society and within governments, and even the creation of culture. And so many churches that may call themselves missional churches in this country will see the, the expression of the gospel in the arts as being a part of the mission that God has given his church to do. Uh, in response to this sort of thing, one missiologist warned, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission, to which another missiologist responded, well, if everything is mission, then everything is mission. So how do we decide? How, how do we figure out what the top priority is that God has given us to do. 
Well, I would certainly say that the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended back to heaven should be extremely important to us in making that decision. And so what I want us to do tonight is to think for a few minutes about the great commissions that Jesus gave. Now, you may not realize this. You may think there is the great commission. But actually, this was so important, Jesus said it over and over and over again. So if you read carefully the accounts in the Gospels and in Acts about Jesus after his resurrection leading up to his ascension, you begin to discover that, in fact, he said it several times, sometimes wording it in different ways. So, for instance, the very night of his resurrection, you will remember the, uh, uh, Jesus met up with the guys on the road to Emmaus. This is found in Luke chapter 24. And in Luke 24, we read that Jesus, having confronted all of his disciples, given proof of his resurrection, and then telling them, okay, this is what Scripture said was going to happen, uh, probably the greatest Old Testament survey course ever given. It was given by Jesus that day. And then he concluded it uh, down, in, um, down in verse 46 by saying, He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So that's the very first night. They're, they're just wrapping their minds around the fact that he's risen from the dead. And already he gives them this great Old Testament uh, lesson and then says the conclusion of all of it is that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to go from Jerusalem to all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the people groups, it's all the same word, of, of the earth. That same night, according to John's gospel, he also says, as the Father has sent me, I also am sending you. Well, then he told them to go meet him in, in Galilee, and that's where we find probably the most familiar form of the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, where we read, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And then keeping your finger there, we know that just as he was preparing to ascend into heaven, back again in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, he says, uh, he, he, he says you know, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that, uh, that the Father has set for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but, you, this is Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what you have here then is numerous accounts worded differently of the same thing that gives us the critical theme of what Jesus wants us to do. And that critical theme is that he is sending us into the world even as the Father sent him. He is sending us in the world to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name so that we can make disciples of all the people groups of the earth to the glory of God and praise of his name. That's the key. That's the heart of the mission that God has given us to do. And here's the key. Because we're not just making converts but disciples, if we do that, we cover everything else that's involved in being a Christian. Because what's a disciple? He sort of defines it. Someone who is taught to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And so someone who is a disciple will meet human needs. Someone who is a disciple will, in fact, pursue justice in every area of life. Someone who is a disciple, in fact, will live every area of their cultural expression to the glory of God. But the key is we are called to go to all the world, to all the nations, in order to make disciples under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of his name. And it is in that context that we receive then this incredible promise that we are given that he will give us his Holy Spirit as powerful proclamation, and that he will be with us as we are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not a promise that whenever you're doing whatever you happen to be doing, God will give you power and Jesus will be with you. Uh, it's in the setting of mission. It's in the setting that as we are going to all the nations, to all the people groups on earth, he'll be with us and empower us through his spirit to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Well, that's great. What does that mean in practical terms? So, for instance, when I went 
to work with my people group in Central Asia, what, in, what practically did I need to do? Uh, how, do we, how do we flesh this out in terms that actually produce something and that give us a, a roadmap for our mission? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. As we think about fleshing out the Great Commission, remembering that the core task is making disciples, that in fact in Matthew 28, the one imperative is make disciples. The scope is all peoples. The definition is teaching them obedience to everything he commanded. The authority is that he is Lord of all. And the provision is his presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, how do we go about that? As we have thought about that as the International Mission Board, we have really sort of boil this down to what we're calling the six core components of the missionary task. And I want to share these with you because I think that they are both applicable to you in your setting right here, because God has planted you in Hernando, Mississippi for a purpose. You are here at his commission to be his representatives here, and because you are a church that is gloriously, wonderfully, encouragingly engaged in mission, and we want you to be working with us in a way that is seamless, that, that you understand what we're up to, and we can work together in a, in a way that is just helpful for all of us. So what I want to do then is talk to you about the six core tasks of the mission that God has given to his church. Task number one, we call entry. An entry means basically we need to find them, we need to get to them, and we need to develop the ability to communicate with them. So first, entry. And the first part of that is find them. We estimate right now that there are over 11,000 people groups in the world. Now hopefully as a, as a church that's been greatly engaged in mission, you're aware of the idea of people group. But just in case there's anyone here for whom that's a, an unfamiliar term, um, we get the word ethnic from the word ethne, which means people or nation in the New Testament. What this basically means is that the human race is divided not into 200-some countries that have a seat in the United Nations, but from a biblical point of view, it's divided into about 11,000-some-odd people groups who have distinct language, distinct culture, distinct history, it's a group of people who think of themselves as us as opposed to them, put, put very simply. Now, America was built on the premise of assimilation that we're sort of all blended together, and most of us can tell you all the many different countries that our ancestors are from. But in many parts of the world, it matters very much not simply what passport you hold, but what your ethnic identity is. And so just to give you an example, the country of Afghanistan, which was part of my, my, my affinity, is about the size of the state of Texas, but they speak over 50 languages in that country. And each one of those language groups thinks of itself as being very different from the others, so much so, in fact, that there is constant internal warfare in Afghanistan. If, if we weren't there, they'd simply be fighting each other. It's, it's like the national sport. Um, but that's what they do. The, these groups fight each other. They don't think of themselves as us. They think we are we and they are them. And we don't want to have anything to do with them. And so what Jesus has told us to do is to get to all the people groups of the earth with the gospel. Well, we have to know who they are and find them. So we have an entire research department that gathers information that um, is vital to us in figuring out where we need to go next. Where are the gaps? Where are the holes? Where are the peoples who have never heard the good news of Jesus? So we want to find them once we have found people groups, we want to know things like, well, are there believers among them or not? What's the level of evangelization? Um, is the Bible in this language? So again, to give you uh, an example of some of the need in the world, my old affinity of Central Asia, that, that part of the world, that basically consists of countries whose names end in Stan. That's pretty helpful, usually. Uh, not Stan. There's, there's no countries whose names end in Stan. My children were not born in Pakistan, okay? They were born in Pakistan. Don't say it wrong in their presence. Um, so the countries whose names end in Stan, plus the Muslims, plus Iran, Turkey, and the Muslims, Muslim areas of Russia and China. So in that area, there are over 400 different languages spoken. We now have, we're excited, we now have the entire Bible in six of them out of over 400. 
So that's something we need to know. We actually have the New Testament in about 12 and gospel portions in about 25 out of 400. So that's something we need to know. That helps us to understand the task that faces us. We want to know who else in the evangelical world is working among them, and we partner with people to the extent that we can as we are theologically and methodologically in agreement. So we've got to figure out who they are and what needs to be done. The next thing we need to do then is to get to them. See, almost all of the unreached peoples that are left are still unreached because you can't go there as a missionary. Almost all of them. There are a few that are still within reach of traditional mission work. But I have been overseas for decades, and I have never been on a missionary visa, ever. Because I have never been working in a place where that was even a possibility. And so you can't go as a missionary, but there's so many ways that you are welcome to come that involve some other skill set that the country or the people find useful. And so that's one of the ironies today is that you may be sitting there thinking that if we're recruiting missionaries, we're after the preachers. And what you don't realize is that the preachers are actually the least useful people in this room. Understand, understand the context when I say that. Because the next statement is the most useful people in the room to take the gospel to the hardest places are the rest of you. Okay, hear that. So who can get into these places? Well, engineers can get into these places, and agriculturalists can get into these places, and school teachers can get into these places, and sports coaches can get into these places. Probably the most fun I ever had on the mission field was spending four years coaching the sport of American football with Central Asian University students. It was a bit of a hoot. They were clueless. Um, but I did go from four years to... Uh, having a team that, was, uh, that basically did not win a single game to being the undefeated national champions the last year there. So I am a national championship college football coach. Um, just in a country whose, I mean, your high school team could beat any of them, all right? But the, the point is that it is things like this. It is practically any sort of skill set that another country will find useful that we need to engage in order to get the gospel to the places where it is most needed. So we have to figure out what's the best way to get in. What's the best kind of person to recruit to go there? What we need then is someone who is a doctor, nurse, engineer, teacher, agriculturalist, sports coach, business person. Um, you know, we've done uh, extreme tourism, whitewater rafting on a river in a place I won't name, but you'd be terrified if I did. Um, things like that. People who will do stuff like that who also, through their church, have been discipled to the point that they know how to share the gospel and make disciples and start churches. So you have that sort of dual competency. That, that's who we mostly need to finish the task that we, that we have still before us. And then as a part of this, we also have to learn languages. Uh, we have to develop the ability to communicate with those people. Um, it is true that English is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world, but what is also true is that the kind of English people speak is what they need for their business, not necessarily what will enable you to share the gospel with them. And so literally, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of languages that people from our organization are learning right now, and that's an essential component. And, and if you are intimidated by the thought of learning another language, just remember that you have already learned one of the most irregular, irrational languages on the planet. Just try to teach English to somebody else. Okay, th think for just a moment with, with me, all right? So how do you make the past tense of a verb? What do you do? You put ed at the end, right? So, following that rule, what's the, past what's the past tense of eat? What's the past tense of run? What's the past tense of sit? What's the past tense of drink? You get the idea. We say we have a rule, and then we break it all the time. It's really hard. Um, so, you've already learned an irrational language. You can certainly learn one that's more rational. And, you know, think of languages like Arabic or Chinese. There's all kinds of three-year-olds that speak it just fine. So, surely you'd be able to as well. But that's step number one, entry. We've got to find out who and where they are. We have to figure out how to get to them. 
And then we have to develop the ability to communicate with them. Entry is stage one. The second part of the task that we start engaging as soon as we start entering is evangelism. We are convinced that there is no salvation apart from hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That making disciples, in fact, must start with sharing the gospel. So evangelism is a non-negotiable component of any legitimate missionary work. Hear me very carefully. If the gospel is not being shared, it's not missions. And that's a line that we want to hold very firmly because there's so much that people would like to do that's popular with the world of going and meeting needs and never talking about Jesus. We live in a culture in, in this country right here that actually is offended by the notion of us going and talking about Jesus. But if we don't talk about Jesus, it isn't missions. Now, some people are more gifted in evangelism than others. We know that. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things that always, I, I just want to ask God about when we get to heaven. The person with the greatest gift of evangelism in my family is my cousin who is a lawyer in Knoxville. Why the lawyer? I'm the missionary. Come on. He's led more people to Jesus than I have. Um, but the fact is, some are gifted. All of us are responsible. All of us are responsible for sharing the gospel. And a critical part of sharing the gospel in a place where, where we're going is understanding enough about the culture that we know how to communicate well in it so that we share in a way that people understand what we're saying. But with all of that, with knowing the language, knowing the worldview, knowing the culture, the fact is that the gospel message is the same everywhere. There is one gospel, and we have got to be faithful to it. We have got to talk about who God is and who we are as sinners before a holy God. We have got to talk about Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice who died in our place for our sins. And we have got to challenge people to repent and believe that good news in order to be saved. And without those elements, what we're doing, again, is not mission work. So what we say to people is no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, no matter what your job description may be, you are an evangelist. And that's true on the mission field. I would also say it is true right here in Hernando, Mississippi. Now, stage one, entry. Stage two, evangelism. But where does, the, where does evangelism lead to? What, what are we after as we share the gospel? Are we after converts? No, we're after disciples. And so the third component of the task that, again, begins immediately as we are sharing the gospel is the component of making disciples. So then that begs the question, well, what's a disciple? Now, it's not a word we use, particularly outside of religious circles in, in our ordinary conversation. And the, the problem is that our educational background has not really trained us well to think in biblical terms about discipleship. So um, among, among my responsibilities, I teach missions at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And I often teach these, these classes like with 70 students in them, in, in an auditorium. It's a mandatory class, so even the people who don't want to have anything to do with missions still have to take it. So they're the ones who sit in the back of the auditorium. Uh, But the fact is, I've got this large classroom full of people, most of whom I will never really know. Uh, The ones who sit down front are the ones who want to interact. Those are the ones I get to know. But what they come in, I lecture, they do the reading assignments I give them, write the papers I tell them to write, take the tests I give them, walk out, get a grade, the class is over, and they have been educated in missions. That's not the way things worked in Jesus' day. And we see the pattern of Jesus and his followers, which really was typical of the way everything happened back then. So a teacher like Jesus would go around and teach probably pretty much the same message everywhere to the crowds. So what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is probably a representative uh, talk that Jesus would give to a large crowd of people. And of course, there were no media of any sort, so you literally had to go around from town to town for people to hear it. But The real work happened with a smaller group, the people who would follow him and follow him closely. And you remember Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to teach. And so that smaller group literally lived with the teacher 24-7. They not only heard him teach the same thing over and over again so that they learned it by heart. You hear something enough times, you're going to remember it. 
But they also had a chance to do follow-up as they were walking from one village to another. They had the chance to ask questions, to explore things more deeply. They had a chance to observe Jesus' life. And part of their goal was not just to learn the content of his message, but to follow the pattern of his life so that it was said in secular circles in Jesus' day that you could tell who had trained someone because they not only knew the material, they actually took on the mannerisms, the figures of speech, the gestures of their teacher. Literally, it's like when I look at you, I see a mirror of your teacher. It's like you are a little representative of your teacher. That's a disciple. A disciple is someone who not only knows what Jesus taught, but who has spent so much time with Jesus that he or she comes to reflect Jesus accurately to a watching world. And that makes total sense because we were created in the image of God to reflect and represent him. We marred that with our sin. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God because he is God himself in human flesh. And he is now calling us to himself in order that we might be conformed to his image. Uh, a verse that, that often gets, gets misunderstood because people get hot and bothered by the first few words comes from Romans 8 where we read, whom, um, whom he foreknew he also predestined, and here the steam starts going out of people's ears, keep listening, whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so what is your destiny? As a Christian, your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus as his disciples. And that's what we're making. So as we work with people on the mission field, just as you work with people here in this church, your goal is not only to communicate well the content of what Jesus taught, but also to work on the transformation of character so that people become like Christ, so that they begin to display the fruit of the Spirit. So here again, we see a perfect congruence. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit a perfect description of the character of Jesus? And doesn't this make sense since he's the spirit of Jesus Christ? So the fruit of him living in your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is in fact making you like Jesus in everything that you are. And so we are working on the head that people would know scripture, on the heart that people would be conformed to the character of Jesus, and on the hands that people would have the basic skills of a disciple who knows how to pray and study the scriptures and share the gospel with others and live out the Christian life in their families, in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods. So that sort of comprehensive picture is what we are after as we think about the task of discipleship. And that leads very naturally to the fourth component. So let me review. We've talked about entry. We've got to find them, get to them, and learn how to communicate with them. We're going to share the gospel. So, number, so evangelism, those who come to faith, we're going to disciple. And then we ask the question, well, in what context do we disciple people? And the answer is that discipleship must happen in the context of a local church. That the New Testament has no concept at all of churchless Christians. And as we read passages like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 or Ephesians chapter 4, we discover that we grow to maturity in Christ as each other believer within a church exercises his or her spiritual gifts and does his or her, her part to it. And, and yes, I have been, been greatly benefited by some other things. I've been greatly benefited by books I've read, greatly benefited by someone meeting one-on-one -on -one with me, greatly benefited by listening to speakers, but it is actually the rough and tumble of a local church with other sinners also striving to become more and more like Jesus that really discipleship takes hold. And so we are convinced that if the central imperative of the Great Commission is make disciples, that necessarily includes plant churches wherever there are none. And we as an organization, we as a denomination have always been unapologetically church-centric in our missiology. And so we are convinced that believers must be gathered into churches. And sometimes that doesn't work very smoothly, mind you. Church planting is hard. And church planting is especially hard in a place where there's a lot of persecution. So, for instance, in the first town that I lived in, 
we found ourselves, after a certain amount of time, with 10 believers whom we had gotten to know individually and who had come to faith in Jesus. We tried to get them together, and they wouldn't. And the reason they wouldn't is that they were afraid of the others. They knew us and trusted us. They didn't trust those other people that they didn't know. They thought, they, you know, they might be spies. They, they might be agents with the secret police or from the mosque whose goal is to sniff out who we are and then expose us to persecution. So we decided, all right, if the 10 of you won't get together to be one church, then the 10 of you are going to be the nuclei of 10 churches. So you start sharing the gospel with people that you know. You start sharing the gospel with people in your circle of acquaintance, your family, whatever is most comfortable to you. And we quickly, all 10 of them didn't do that, but we quickly had probably seven or eight churches that emerged from those folks. It happened that in that culture, people were most comfortable with others who worked with them, others in the same profession. So the first church in that town was all medical workers because the believer was a medical doctor, and he started sharing the gospel with nurses and medtechs, and they and their families came to Christ, and that was the first church in that area. But however it needs to be done, we're convinced that church is essential. Now, again, not everyone agrees with us on this. There was a, uh, a person from a student ministry, whose name you would recognize if I said it, who came to our city. We welcomed him onto our team. We were, he, he was Baptist. He, we were theologically aligned. He was eager to work with us. But he was instructed by his organization to leave our team because we were, and I quote, wasting our time planting churches. And what he was told is just share the gospel, do one-on-one -on -one discipleship. That's all that's really necessary. This other thing is too hard and too time-consuming. We're convinced that that's simply unbiblical. That there, again, as I said, there is no picture in the New Testament of people who are believers, followers of Jesus, who are cut off from the fellowship of a local church. So, entry, evangelism, discipleship, church planting. Well, those churches need leaders. And there's a fair bit in the New Testament about the qualifications of leaders and the responsibilities of leaders. So, if our goal is that the new churches grow to maturity... If our goal is that the new churches not be dependent on us to lead them, after all, we can get kicked out at any time, and frequently are. And in the part of the world that, that I have lived in, same part of the world that the Donovans have lived in, we get kicked out a lot. Uh, people are frequently expelled from countries, usually for being fruitful with the gospel. So we need to leave behind churches that can be self-led, that have pastor, elder, overseer types who are capable of pastoring the flock, and teaching the sheep. So, those leaders need to be trained. And what we have seen in leadership training, in fact, is that really it's mostly, it's like 90% discipleship. If you think about the qualifications for an elder or a pastor, uh, an overseer, as given in 1 Timothy and Titus, most of them are things that simply should be true of every believer. And so, in effect, a pastor is to be someone who is an example to the flock someone who is an exemplary disciple showing the rest of the church this is what all of us ought to look like. Now, along with that, there are some tasks, some skills required of such a person, namely that they be able to teach, that they be able to refute sound doctrine, that they be able to guard the flock from false teachers. And so there is a biblical knowledge that needs to be imparted, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on, on strange grounds, the seminary professor saying this, we, we basically don't send people to seminary. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but we find it far better to train people not for ministry, but in ministry where they are. We find it better to take the training to them than to bring them to the training. And we have found that in a local church setting, people can learn scripture really, really well and be really well equipped to teach and to defend the truth of the faith. So, we look at things like knowing the content, interpretation, and application of the Bible, knowing theology. You know, there's no point in making new believers make the same mistakes that the church has made over the last 2,000 years. Let's clue them in to some of the things we've learned along the way. But we also want to work on character issues like maturity and humility and integrity, and to work on skills like teaching and shepherding, evangelizing and discipling. 
But most of that on the mission field we do non-traditionally in the context of a local church. So we've seen then some, some basic tasks, entry, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, leadership training. And it's not like they are first you do this and then you stop doing that and you do this and then you stop doing that and you do this. They tend to sort of blend together in what you're doing. But our goal ultimately is to not be necessary. Our goal is that they reach the point that we heard about where they say, let us do this now. It's our turn. We don't really need you to be doing this anymore. Um, our goal is, in fact, that they reach the point of full partner who go with us even further into the lostness of the world to share the gospel with those who have never known it. So our goal is not to be there forever. Now, if we stay too short a time, if we don't do a good job of discipling and training leaders, then we may very well leave them as prey to the wolves. And what we find as you look in the New Testament is that even after an apostle like Paul would leave someplace, he'd pay attention to what was going on. He'd, he'd go back and visit again. He'd send people like Titus or Timothy to visit again. If he couldn't go himself, he'd write a letter. So in fact, all the letters of the New Testament are part of the missionary strategy of the apostles. It's follow-up to make sure that things are, are going as they should be and the churches are healthy. But if we stay too long, we develop unhealthy dependence on us. And so what we looked at, look at very often is a phased process in which we are less and less necessary and hence less and less involved. But we are convinced that the missionary task is not done until those first stages have actually been addressed and addressed in a healthy way. So there are some places where we may have left too soon or we may have left an inadequate foundation that we are finding it necessary for us to re-engage. And this is often especially true when it comes to discipleship and leadership training. Um, I, I was just in Africa a little, little over a month ago. Africa right now is well on its way to being the center of the Christian world. There, there, there's going to be more Christians in Africa than any other continent very soon. Uh, but the problem is that there's also false teaching that is spreading like wildfire. It's the false teaching of the so-called prosperity gospel. And let me be very, very clear, and, I'm, and I am a, a person who is accustomed to speaking carefully and discreetly. The prosperity gospel is heretical. It is not the gospel, and it will not save you. It is false and damnable. And we have found ourselves needing to go back and re-engage in a number of, of ways to sort of shore up some of the leadership training to make sure that they have the tools in understanding and interpreting and applying Scripture to be able to combat this horrible false teaching uh, that, is, that is spreading like wildfire, not just in Africa, but also in Latin America and in many parts of Asia. But our goal is to leave. Our goal is partnership and exit. Um, and that's what we see in the apostles. We see them not staying forever. And we also see that as they go, they'll take some along with them to join in the task. People like Timothy and Titus, whom they are training to be missionaries themselves and to be continually engaged in the task. So those are the six core elements to this one essential task. Entry, evangelism, discipleship, healthy church formation, leadership development, and partnering exit. That's what we understand the missionary task to be. Now, as we are doing that, again, we are ourselves disciples of Jesus. And so we do find ourselves constantly engaged in meeting human needs. And we have an entire part of our organization called Baptist Global Response that is engaged in every type of relief and development work around the world. And we will continue to do that simply because we are disciples of Jesus. But part of what we insist on is that we won't do it in a way that is separate from sharing the gospel. And so I have spent myself a lot of relief and development money in desperately needy places in Central Asia. But in each case, when I requested the funds for a water project or for rebuilding after a natural disaster or for feeding hungry people during a famine. In each case, they have asked me to write up for them how this integrates into sharing the gospel, discipling believers, planting churches, and training leaders. Because we want to see it holistically integrated together. We don't just want to be another Red Cross. Pagans can do that. 
we are there to share the gospel as we act like disciples of Jesus in the environments that we are in. Well, what does this have to do with this church here in Northwest Mississippi? Let me suggest, first of all, that you look very seriously at these tasks in terms of your own mission in your own community. That you think about issues of, for instance, entry and evangelism. Um, one of the frustrations I have now, I mean, you, you take a missionary and you put him in the home office of the International Mission Board, and it's like, you know, I used to have hair, um, and, and, and this beard used to be red. Um, there's a reason, reason why we tend to make bad home office people, and, and part of that is that I spend all day, every day, in a building full of Christians. That's awful. I mean, you know, that's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be out there with, with non-believers. And so I have had to learn to be intentional in my life to put myself in situations where I can share the gospel. In my case, it's, it's the, the gym where I work out. And frankly, I, I have found that my best friends at the gym are named Osama and Mohammed and Mehmet because, well, part of it is because I'm just attracted to Muslims. Naturally, I like hanging out with them. They're really friendly people, by the way. Um, if you have this notion that Muslims are mostly terrorists, banish that from, from your mind. That's like people in the rest of the world think that all Americans are cowboys, and they're convinced we all walk around with six shooters. Um, it's just, it's a media stereotype. It is not true. Okay, so I have found that in that, that environment, then I can make contact with non-believers, and I'm intentional about doing it for the sake of the gospel. I think about going back to the same stores, going back to, you know, used to go to a barber, I don't need to do that anymore. Um, going, going places where I see the same people over and over again for the sake of the gospel. And so I'd encourage you to have that sort of entry intentionality in your own community as a congregation, to be engaged in evangelism in your community, to be engaged in discipleship within your church in a way that includes everyone in the church. So just let me say another word about discipleship. I'm responsible now for training new missionaries. And one of the things we have discovered is that we cannot count on much of anything in terms of the discipleship that someone has received before they come to us as a missionary. Uh, we actually ended up creating our own discipleship program. It's on the imb.org website. It's called Deep in Discipleship. It's free. Anybody can do it. It's a six-month walk through the New Testament. And then as issues of, of theology or practice or ethics emerges from the text, we address it as we go along. And we now require everyone who's going to come to us as a missionary to have gone through that just to make sure that people have actually read the whole thing We've had people come to us who haven't read the whole Bible as missionaries and to make sure that they have addressed some of the critical issues of discipleship. So make sure that discipleship is not reserved for the elite within your congregation, but it's the expected norm for everyone in your congregation. And be involved in church planting. I know that this is a church that has been planted off of another church. That process needs to continue, even in the Bible Belt, even in a place like this. And, and, and by the way, um, you, just to give you an example of some of the discrepancies, the country that I, I lived in the longest is a country of 80 million people, and we are excited that there are now 5,000 Christians in that country out of 80 million. So there's a lot more Christians, I would guess, in this county than that, but there's also a lot of lost people. And you still need to be sharing the gospel, and you still need to be planting churches among them. So cultivate that sort of culture here within your own congregation, a culture of, of entry and evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. That makes it a lot easier when God raises up missionaries out of your church for them to know what to do when they get to the field. Just, we're going to keep doing what we were doing back in Hernando. Let me also urge you and encourage you to not just evangelize people who are like you, but intentionally to reach out to the internationals who are among you. You know, I, I really, I, I know that immigration is a political hot topic, and I'm not going to address it, other than to say this. Well, however you feel about the fact that they got here, the fact remains that God is sovereign, and they're here. And the reason they're here 
is to be near you. Let that sink in. God allowed, let, arranged for them to be here so they could be near you. You know what the best way to defuse any threat of terrorism is? Get them saved. I mean, that solves it all, right? So he brought them here so they could be around a Christian so you could share the gospel with them. So the next time you see a covered woman, the next time you see an obviously Middle Eastern or Central Asian looking man, don't think terrorist threat, think evangelistic opportunity. Because that's why God arranged their proximity to you. That culture of evangelism and discipleship. And then I would encourage you to evaluate your mission activity in terms of its con contribution to these tasks. So as you think about engaging both locally and globally in any sort of mission work, think, hmm, entry, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, leadership formation, partnership and exit. How does what we want to do fit into that? How does it encourage that? How does it spur that on to make the task go forward in a more effective way? There's tons of stuff you can do around the world. This is what we're convinced is most effective for you to do and to be engaged in. And then, of course, finally, I would simply say that the way you can apply this is to honestly ask yourself the question, why am I living where there are a lot of Christians instead of where there aren't? Given the fact that the kinds of people that are most useful in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth are the kinds of people that are sitting in these chairs, are the doctors, nurses, med techs, lawyers, engineers, business people, agriculturalists, sports coaches, teachers, etc., that those are the kinds of folks we need, you have the most priceless treasure on earth. That treasure is the treasure of the gospel. You also, many of you, have the ability to take it places that a traditional missionary could not. So instead of asking yourself the question, why should I go, try reversing that and asking yourself the question, why shouldn't I go? Now do this in the fellowship of your church. Do this in conversation with other believers who know you well, who know your strengths and weaknesses, who know your gifts. But I look at the world right now and, and I weep. I think about my old area of Central Asia or the, or the Middle East and North Africa. And I think vast areas of lostness. And I ask, where are the Christians who will take the good news of the gospel to places where it's never been? I have a map of Central Asia up on my wall. I had someone, when I was regional leader, ask me, how do you determine where the gospel's needed? And I said, there's the map. Got a dart? Because literally, if I throw a dart at that map, it's going to land in a place, almost certainly, where there are no believers. Country I last lived in. Like I said, 5,000 Christians, five 6,000 Christians out of 80 million people. There are 100 provinces in the country, and we are now excited that there are believers in 10 of those 100, which means there's 90 provinces with no believers, no churches, no workers, nothing. And no hope of that changing anytime soon unless more will rise up to, to, the, uh, to the task. So my encouragement to you is ask yourself how not should I be involved in the Great Commission? Because it's a command to you as much as to anyone else. Jesus thought so much of it that he gave it over and over and over again in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Ask yourself, how am I to engage in the Great Commission? Both right here in this town and to the ends of the earth. Finally, I want to say one more word to a very special group of people. And that is simply this, that a, a, a crowd this size, I do not assume that everyone here actually is a disciple of Jesus. And so if you are here and you don't quite understand what we're talking about when we talk about being a follower of Jesus, you don't quite understand what we mean by the gospel, let me simply tell you the gospel and remind the rest of us of it. That there is a God. He created everything. And this God is a holy God who is utterly perfect in all of his ways and who hates all that is evil. And we should be glad that the universe is ruled by a God who is totally just and who hates all form of evil. The problem is that we as people 
are rebels against that God. That we as people, each one of us have within ourselves grievous sin, which simply means that we have disobeyed and dishonored this God. That every one of us by rights, and it includes the best person you know, every one of us deserves nothing but condemnation from this God. But this God who is holy is also loving. And he looked on us in our rebellion. He looked on us in, in our, our utter rejection of him, and he loved us. And he loved us so much that he became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived as our substitute, and then died the death we deserve to die, taking on himself the wrath against our sin. And he absorbed it all. That he truly died, who was the immortal one, and then truly rose again as the victor over sin and death and hell. That he ascended to heaven and is even right now at the right side of his father interceding for his people. And he has sent his people out to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. Which means that the command goes out to every human being that God charges us to turn our backs on our rebellion against him. And to put our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation. And if you have never done that. That is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Because it is literally the difference between heaven and hell, between life and death. And so my encouragement now as we're about to have a time of response to this is if you have never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't know you're going to be alive tomorrow. I would, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, repent and believe the good news of Jesus. For those who are in Christ in this room, I would encourage you, first of all, just to rejoice at the amazing grace that God has shown you. And then to recognize that when you were saved, Jesus bought you. He owns you. And you live for his glory. And to ask yourself then, how am I to be involved in taking the, that good news of salvation to those who've never had a chance to hear it?